History Town was brought to you by... It's 1862. You are hand-digging through layers of frustrating gravel, hoping and praying the next shovel stroke will expose a fortune in gold. Everyone says it's crazy, but there's too much at stake. Then, just when the outcome seems impossibly bleak, the ground begins to pay. The lead is struck, and the greatest creekside placer gold deposit the world has ever seen is suddenly yours for the taking. This is Barkerville's story. For more information, visit barkerville.ca. Barkerville a National Historic Site of Canada. You found History Town. You found History Town. You found History Town. You found History Town. Hey, you found History Town. Nice one. (laughs) Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to History Town Podcast. My name is Matthew Quick, and I am your host. Uh, Now, this week's episode, we have a very special guest. Uh, It's me. Uh, I will be the guest. Uh, we have James Douglas, who is the executive producer of History Town, uh, who is also um, the manager of visitor experiences in Barkerville, a uh, historic town and beautiful park. Uh, right now, they have a lot of snow. He's going to tell us all about the winter activities you can do in Barkerville. Then James and I uh, s- switch positions. Uh, James becomes the interviewer. I become the interviewee. And we discuss me, just a brief glimpse of... Um, uh, me coming to British Columbia and Barkerville, uh, just a little rough outline of who I am. Uh, nothing too in depth. Uh, and when things get try to be a little in depth, I get a little uncomfortable, and make a few jokes. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was nice to sit down with James. Uh, also, James has a lot of projects on the go, and feel free uh, support, like, share, do whatever you can, because uh, this is a listener supported podcast. Uh, now, without any further ado, um, how are you doing today, James? I am doing spectacularly, Matt. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, uh, I've been following Barkerville on Facebook, and I wish I had an inner tube and a vacation time to go to Barkerville because that new sled run looks amazing. It- I am not going to lie. It it is an amazing thing, I have to say. And and here I got I got half of it for you. You don't even need to bring a tube because part of your lift ticket, you get the tube rental, you get a, a complimentary helmet rental if if you want the helmet. Um, so yeah, all you need is the vacation time and a means to get up here. But I have to say, I mean, we've been talking about it before everything unrolled, uh, the Shamrock Magic Carpet Lift and Tube Run, now at Barkerville, British Columbia. Uh, (laughs) But since everything officially opened a couple of weeks back, it has been incredible. Uh, We have seen hundreds of people every day of the weekends. Uh, We're open Thursday to Sunday. Thursday and Friday are a little lighter. We get some group bookings in. But Saturday and Sunday are the big days. Uh, We've got families from... Quinnell from Williams Lake from Prince George coming down. Uh, the cafe has been packed right from, wow. from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. Uh, people are having a really great time with the tubes. Um, also, we just opened our first of two skating rinks this week. So my kids, for example, are, are out at the indoor-outdoor shelter right inside Barkerville skating their faces off right now and having having a blast doing it. That's incredible. Now, where is the skating rinks located in re- relation to, like, you're coming in through, so you see the main... The main um, Barkerville mine shaft as you're coming in. 
Yeah, so, so you so you've come. Th- it's actually in the skating rink is inside the park itself. So oh, wow. you know, so you're coming into the parking lot. The the Shamrock Magic Carpet Lift and Tube Run is on your right hand side. You park your car. You go into the visitors reception center where the cafe and gift store is, and then you just keep walking right out those back doors as if you were going to line up for a town tour during the summer. And uh, you'll know this, uh, some of our listeners may not, there is a, a, a small hill just outside of the visitor's reception center that we refer to as Whistlepig Hill, lovingly, because <laughs> of the Colombian ground squirrels that uh, live in that hill. Uh, it's quite an apartment complex for these little rodents <laughs> who are super cute and only come out for about six weeks out of the year. They're actually the animal with the longest hibernation period in the world. Wow. These, these Colombian ground squirrels, which we call whistle pigs because when they're scared, they whistle and they eat like pigs. <laughs> but so right beside that whistle pig hill, there, there used to be a number of um, uh, picnic tables set up. And occasionally in past years, we've had a giant canvas tent to provide some shelter uh, for people in that area. So that giant canvas tent has now been replaced by a building four times its size uh, that is heated, has full electricity, full full lights, but it has open air windows. So the shutters close and you can you can stay you know, you can have a closed environment, but there's no gl- panes of glass in those windows. If you open the shutters, it's it's just open air, which in the summertime will be fantastic because there will be seats in there. People can have uh, picnic lunches there. Uh, we'll be able to rent it out for weddings and other, uh, other group bookings. But we engineered the slab of concrete in that building specifically so that in the wintertime it could be flooded and turned into a family skating rink. So that's, that's wow. the purpose that it's uh, having right now. What's the size of the the concrete slab? Is it like a, a regulation rink, or is it just a little bit under? Or no, it... this this one, and I mentioned it's one of two. So this one is the the sort of the kids sized, the family oh, sized okay, one. Yeah. So you, you're you're probably looking at about maybe a fifth of the size of a regulation rink. Um, but there is a regulation size hockey rink that's currently being constructed in the parking lot. So when you pass the Shamrock Tube Run, uh, you'll see that there is actually a, a regulation size where ultimately we'll get like a whole kit that has boards and stuff. But for the first little while, it'll just be like a shinny, uh, shinny rink. Um, but you'll be able to play, play games of hockey right on there. That's amazing. That's amazing. The, the I, I mean, uh, it's fun for me because I always I, I only come back to Barkerville like once a year now and seeing all the innovations that take place and even that I'm like the forethought I mean I don't know who it is but the forethought of being like well we should at least make it an ice rink when it's not being used that's perfect I'll tell you perfect exactly I'll tell you exactly whose idea it was it was Don Leroy's idea Don, Don Le- oh <laughs> Don Leroy is our part-time payroll clerk but she's also the president of the Wells Snowmobile Association and has for years been saying, you know, we really need a few more outdoor recreational opportunities here. And so um, she immediately got into Ed Coleman's office, our CEO, um, and started saying, like, I think that we can we can make this work. And he was very good about it. He, you know, the first things that he said was, OK, well, bring me a plan. Show me how it will work and then show me how we can get it funded. And Don did those things, and here wow. we are. And that was in, that was last January. So one year ago, uh, she actually went into Ed's office with this proposal, and one year from then, the whole thing has been, has been funded through some very generous granting uh, agencies, uh, most specifically the Northern Development Initiative Trust, 
has, has come on board, but there has been so many, including the province of British Columbia, so many different. I mean, ultimately, this has been a $160,000 project and then some, um, and uh, the support that we've gotten from the province and the region has been uh, it's spectacular. It's amazing. And it, Dawn, Dawn was one of those people, I always remember when she first came to the park, it would have been probably 2000, I don't want to quote this wrong, 2008, 2007-ish, maybe, maybe even before that. It might have been she 2006, old, yeah, because I was here in 2006, 2006 yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, she was always one of those, uh, the, the Barkerville people that you'd see with the radio on her side and always would take a, you'd always see them, like you were one of them. Dawn, uh, I mean, countless others who would walk through the park, say hello, check everything out, and then go into the office. And it was like, it was always one of those things where I'm like, wow, like, okay, I think you, you're surveying, you're constantly thinking of ideas or constantly looking at the way the park can work. And it's always great to see like the innovations that take place. It's amazing. It's amazing. I love it. For sure. Uh, Now, speaking of innovations, uh, hard workers, uh, 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 people that have foresight, uh, see, soothsayers of uh, of uh, positive ideas. Uh, I, I'm really just you know uh, pulling your chain here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really want to talk about because there's a, a immense project. You brought it up last podcast. Um, it is uh, the it is a movie project that you're working on. It is based on a, a Stephen King short story. And I would like you to give us an update and maybe just a brief explanation of where we were last time you left you, because so many changes have happened in a month. Uh, (laughs) It's like a locomotive. It started off real slow out of the station. Next thing you know, I'm looking around. I'm like, what's going on? Every week there's a new update. So um, maybe you can help our listeners and let's start uh, maybe a little brief recap of where you were from last time and then to all the changes. If we have time, I mean, geez, we're supposed to We'll have to get going, but yeah, I'd love to hear all about it. (laughs) I'll do my best. Um, Okay, so just as a brief recap, um, since 1977, Stephen King's publishing company in Bangor, Maine, has administered a program called Dollar Babies. Now, Dollar Babies is quite simply what it says. If, uh, If an early career filmmaker is looking to adapt one of King's short stories, it's specifically short stories, that are currently not licensed by someone else, you make an application to the program. If the application is accepted, then $1 later you have the non-commercial rights to film uh, that particular, adapt that particular short story. So in November of 2016, I applied uh, for the Dollar Babies program, specifically looking at a Sherlock Holmes story that Stephen King wrote back in the late 80s, which was later republished in Nightmares and Dreamscapes in the early 90s, called The Doctor's Case. And the conceit is that John Watson, MD, uh, Sherlock Holmes' trusty companion, actually solves a case before his rather fabulous friend Sherlock Holmes, simply because Holmes is allergic to cats. And the locked room murder mystery that they are investigating involves a house full of cats. So he's having this massive allergic reaction and misses a key piece of evidence that Watson sees. So it's a fun little story. It's it's taking a different kind of look at Sherlock Holmes and Watson and their relationship. And it always was a story that that I really liked because I am both a Sherlock Holmes fan and a Stephen King's fan. And I thought if there was ever any way that I could film that, 
short story, this would be the perfect thing for me to cut my teeth on, especially since with Barkerville, there are some interiors here that would make very good Victorian drawing rooms. Uh, I have some connections with other historic sites around British Columbia, so uh, we've been able to get Craig Derrick Castle on board in Victoria, as well as Emily Carhouse. Uh, the interior of Emily Carr House will double as 221B Baker Street, actually. It's, oh. <laughs> it's going to be a perfect location. Um, so yeah, and so I've just been trying to put together a team of people that will both work behind the camera and in front of the camera uh, and pulling out a lot of favors from people because, of course, although we will raise uh, a significant amount of money over the next couple of months to make this work, most of that money is going to be poured directly into being able to rent cameras and lighting equipment and everything else right. and then travel. So everybody, pretty much everybody who's involved in the project so far is doing this out of the goodness of their heart, wow. if, you can, if you can believe it. Um, and that includes some, some pretty heavy hitters uh, both again on screen and off. So where did we leave off last time? I think I was talking about how I was going down to Los Angeles to speak to a, uh, a Stephen King alumnus, uh, someone yes. who, in, in fact, in this case, it's an alumna. Um, my, my producing partner, Norm Coyne from Unlimited Media and Events in Prince George, uh, he and I went to California in December to speak with Denise Crosby. Now, Denise Crosby, you will know, and I know some of the people listening to this podcast will know most specifically as Tasha Yar on Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, she was in the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, then came back later on as uh, Tasha Yar's half-Romulan daughter from another dimension named <laughs> Sela, which was a, a story arc that honestly I think cemented Tasha Yar in the annals of Star Trek history. Uh, for a character that died early on, um, she, she has gained a significance in fandom because of that Sela story arc, if, uh, among other things. But also, of course, Denise Crosby is a working actor in LA. Like she's, she's working all the time. Uh, she, was, she had a popular arc on The Walking Dead a couple of years ago. Uh, she's a regular on Ray Donovan. Um, but also a few years back, she was in a small movie called Pet Cemetery, which was based on Stephen King's novel of the same name. He wrote the screenplay for that. Uh, movie he was on set the entire time so Denise and Stephen King actually have a bit of a, a prior relationship and because she and I had had a prior relationship because she was kind enough in 2013 to come to Barkerville uh, for a geek weekend that we were putting on uh, back then <clears throat> that's where our relationship started she had a really great time. She was really interested in historical interpretation, the kind of theater that we that we practice here in Barkerville. She and I, as a result of that, over the last couple of years, have been trading ideas back and forth about some potential interpretive offerings in LA, as well as poten a potential series, um, a television series that talks specifically about some of the history of LA. So it was it was a relationship that had been preformed. But as soon as we got the rights to the doctor's case, I knew that there was something that I wanted to do, which was to kind of create a set of scenes, just short scenes that framed the entire story. If you read the doctor's case, the short story, it is from Watson's perspective when he is in his 90s in the story, looking back 50 years at the one and only time he can remember solving a case before Sherlock Holmes. Now, and that is simply taken care of in a couple of short sentences at the very beginning of the story. What we decided we wanted to do was it would be more dramatically interesting to kind of explode those sentences and create a framing device 50 years after the fact. So our 
our main story in the doctor's case takes place in 1889 at Hull House, which is this manor where the uh, locked room murder mystery took place. But it will be framed by some scenes that take place in the same house, Hull House, 50 years later, because at that point, that estate has been um, commandeered by the British uh, military and turned into a hospital during the Blitz, because 50 years after 1889 is getting close to 1940. So those framing scenes will take place probably in September of 1940. So it'll be 50 years almost to the day that this thing happened. Watson has gone to this house because he's on a last sentimental tour of you know some of the places he and Holmes had their greatest successes. Holmes is 30 years in his grave by this point. Something happens which makes him have to stay at this house for a little bit of time, and he winds up talking to a, an American military captain who, for reasons that will ultimately be explained, is volunteering uh, in England. The U.S. hasn't entered World War II by 1940, but they, the, it is eminent. So she has somehow made her way to London in 1940. She's volunteering at this hospital that Dr. Watson winds up at, and then he tells her the story of what happened to him at that place 50 years earlier. And then the whole thing wraps up very nicely in an end credit scene that I won't talk about at all. But um, <laughs> so I had this amazing idea, like I wanted to create this thing and I wanted there to be some really good, because it'll basically be, you know, <clears throat> other than the, the, the events leading up to the murder specifically, which will be kind of the prologue to the film, the very first thing that you see after the credits roll will be this 1940 scene. And I wanted to make sure that I had very good, very experienced actors at my disposal for this this scene. And obviously I wanted to be able to, to catch some people's attention. I mean, if Stephen King is gonna watch this movie, the very fact that Denise Crosby might be, might be in it, and I can say now that she will be in it, um, is definitely plays into our favor. And then the next goal was to find somebody of equal caliber that she could play off of who would play the, in our case, 87-year-old Watson who's telling the story. Michael Coleman, my friend from Vancouver, who plays Happy on Once Upon a Time, who has been with the project since the very beginning, is playing Watson in 1889. And we needed, wow. a, we needed an actor who looked enough like him that we could pull this off. And because I didn't want to put age makeup on Michael Coleman in order to, to make him the 87-year-old Watson. We wanted somebody who was a little closer to that age, who then we can you know put some makeup on and make them look just a tiny bit older. So... The fact that Denise Crosby said yes to us, and really she was so amazingly generous with her time when we were in LA and with her time coming up in April, because we plan to shoot uh, in April in Victoria. So her, her willingness to, without even seeing the script, which is complete now and she has seen it since, but without even seeing the full script, she, she told me that she trusted the vision and that she wanted to be a part of it. So that was... Wow. Just what an incredible honor, right? I mean, I'm ostensibly yeah. a first-time film director, and Denise Crosby, who is not only Tasha Yar and from Pet Cemetery and all of this, but she's Bing Crosby's granddaughter. I mean, the fact that there is this person who is involved in this amazing Hollywood legacy who is willing to, to, to be as generous as she is with her time. It, it, I just can't even, obviously, I just can't even say enough good things about this situation. You never stop. 
you never stop. I, 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 there's always new projects happening. There's always something you always have a, uh, you're, it's like you start up a project, you're looking at it, you get it great and get it going. And then you're like, you're going to focus energy on it. Then you're like, okay, I can help you with your project here. Now I'm going to help you with this project, help with this project. And it's not like you, do, I, I wonder when you sleep because you have a twin daughters, <laughs> you, you have a, you have a full family and, uh, you, I mean the, the park, and your family are, I mean, I know you you love that park. I'm not going to say that one of these cliche things like you love that park more than a baby or anything like this. But the love for you you have for Barkerville is amazing. And it's uh, and the fact that um, these kind of projects can come forward, but also uh, because, James, I honestly believe that if you were not doing something with Barkerville, let's just say it's an alternate timeline. We're in a different world. Where would you be? You'd be doing the exact same thing, but with something else and making it just as amazing. Uh, so that's the kind of energy you have. And I'm I'm proud I'm happy and uh proud to say uh, you know, that you help me with my projects and everything else. And uh, now how can we long winded, because I say all this because I'm not I'm not trying to sales pitch you, but I'm trying to sales pitch for everyone else, is how can we help this project? How can I myself or somebody who's listening could be like i really want to help this project i'd like to follow it i'd like to be a part of it and and its journey how can we do that well there's there's a couple of really great ways if if what you're looking for is more information straight off the bat the best repository for that information is our website which is www.thedoctorsmovie.com no apostrophe s it's just the doctor's movie all lowercase Com. So www.thedoctorsmovie.com. We're also at facebook.com slash thedoctorsmovie, twitter.com slash thedoctorsmovie, instagram.com slash thedoctorsmovie. <laughs> so any of, those, uh, any of those online resources will get you a lot of up-to-date information. I know we did mention something uh, in our last talk about the Kickstarter campaign, our, our crowdfunding campaign for the production side of things. We'll, we'll do probably another uh, crowdfunding uh, Indiegogo campaign for some post-production work uh, later on in the summer. But actually, as of tomorrow, and we are now, uh, what is this, January 22nd? January 22nd. Uh, so January 23rd, our Kickstarter campaign goes live. And there are some amazing perks and uh you know uh, incentives for people uh you can you can donate any anywhere as little as ten dollars uh, right up to ten thousand dollars and there is a sliding scale of some amazing perks uh depending on how much or how little you want to chip in uh, it's really hard for me to to ask people for money you know i'm, I'm one of those guys who loves sharing my uh, my friends kickstarter campaigns or indiegogo campaigns or if they're doing story hive like getting people voting i'm i'm there i want people to help my friends in their creative endeavors all the time. I'm really bad about asking for it myself. So although I am slightly embarrassed by even bringing up the Kickstarter. <laughs> I brought it up. I'm the uh, one that did it. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I appreciate it because we will definitely need some help. We do have some of our budget has has already been brought to us, which is fantastic. And again, the, the strong efforts of the producing team behind me, uh, making sure that they can drum up some of the money that is necessary. It is going to be a very micro budget. We don't need a huge amount of money, comparatively speaking, in the film industry. We don't need a huge amount of money to make this work, but we do have uh, a goal, a, quite a, a good goal set in mind for our budget. Um, so, so we will be asking people regularly to help donate if they possibly can, um, because it's, uh, it's going to be an amazing project to be a part of. And as I mentioned, the, the incentives for those people who are willing to donate through Kickstarter are, are pretty, 
special. So uh, when if you go to our website, www.thedoctorsmovie.com, there will be a link directly uh, available to you there to the Kickstarter page uh, once that goes live tomorrow morning. And the... The beautiful thing about this is that if you have, I, I mean, I know you, you're, you're like uh, on the sales. Me, uh, I'm a little bit more shameless. Think of it like if I was going to buy everybody in my office coffee, it would cost me $20. I would buy then a day's worth or an hour's worth of coffee for everybody. You put in $20, you're buying into a dream. You're buying into a vision and you're buying into something that you can follow. And it's sort of making it exciting. It's not a... Um, it's something that you can say that you've been a part of and, uh, anytime with these kind of movies or video games or books, anytime you, you help these out, you can see who you're helping. You can hear them. You can talk to them. Uh, I'm sure if you tweet at them, they, they will respond. And it's, it's just one of those things. It's, it's to be, uh, it's, we can make these kind of art and entertainment outside of a big box system. And it just means that we all just pitch in together. So, uh, yeah, if you can help out. I mean, I know I'm not I'm I know James might be a little bit embarrassed, but yeah, help out. I mean, it's it's what I always say. It's if it's costing you coffee for the day or for the week, but at least you got something to follow for even a year. You have at least a vision inside and something you can say you're part of. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh now uh before before uh we leave and we talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> About time, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there, uh, before we go, um, so we're going to have updates on uh, the link or towards um, the, the campaigns and all the social media. Is there anything with Barkerville that's coming up in the, I mean, we'll probably have the next episode out coming in the next uh, coming month. But is there anything coming up this month or any information that people would like to know about or any way they can... Um, absolutely yeah check and always check barkerville.ca for our for our most up-to-date list of some of the cool things that are happening around here um just just to keep it in everybody's mind of course as we've said before thursday to sunday from 10 a.m to 4 p.m we have our shamrock magic carpet lift and tube run uh Tuesday to Sunday, our gift shop and uh, and cafe is open, as well as our small skating rink. So, and it, by the way, the skating rink is just by donation. Uh, we do have skates oh. to rent. If you want to rent skates, that's five dollars. You don't need to worry about donating. You can just go skating. If you bring your own skates, a small donation, and you can spend all day at the skating rink. Uh, which, as I mentioned, my kids are doing right now, thankfully, because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise they'd be knocking on my door right now, and this would be a much more difficult time to talk. Um, <laughs> But we have that, and then also the the really amazing thing that happens uh, at the end of the month, uh, at the end of January every year, and this is something, if you can make it out to Barkerville on the 29th of January, you have to come and see the, the final leg of the, the Gold Rush Dog Sled Mail Run, or in specifically, I think it's the Gold Rush Sled Dog Mail Run. But we are the last place, Quinnell, Quinnell to, to Barkerville, and this is the, I think, the 25th anniversary we are the last place, as far as we know, in the world where there is actual Canada Post mail or, or actual like mail that is still delivered by dog sled. So once a year, there is a massive dog sled, not really race, because it's not as much a race as it is just a, an, a happening for people. But there's two dozen dog sled teams that come out. They start in Quenelle. They do a whole series of loops around Quenelle uh, on the 26th, I believe, and then they move uh, from Quenelle to uh, 
Troll Ski Resort, and they do they do some work there, and then or some some races there, and then the final leg, which they call the the Barkerville Dash, uh, takes participants from Wells to Barkerville, up the back street of Barkerville, and they hook around and come right down the main street uh, to cross the finish line and deliver bags of mail that have special uh, sled dog mail run envelopes and stamps on them. But that mail officially gets delivered to the Barkerville post office, uh, which is an official post office, and then sent out from there. So it's, it, it is an, an amazing opportunity to see something that, you know, used to happen all the time and doesn't happen anywhere else in the world anymore, except right here in the Caribou. So I would highly recommend if you're, if you're in the local area and you hear this before January 29th, come out to Barkerville on Sunday the 29th and cheer on those dog sleds as they come, come down the main street. That's amazing. That's awesome. Excellent. So, and once again, that is January 29th, 29th, the Sunday. Perfect. So not this weekend, but the next or a week away. So hopefully I'll get this out uh, beginning of the week and then we can give everybody enough time. And uh, I'm sure if they have any questions, they can go on the website and they can contact Barkerville directly and uh, it'd be wonderful. Also, why don't we make a day out of it? You got a skating rink, you have a sled, you got a dog sled. I mean, come on. Absolutely. Make and, a day. And then don't forget too. normally, I, as I've said before, the tube run is normally only open Thursday through Sunday, but on Monday, the 13th of February, it's uh, family day in British Columbia. So we will be open and we'll have a whole other set of barbecue stuff going and a bunch of other special events too. Amazing. Amazing. All right, James. Well, I, um, we're, we're going to continue back, but we're going to first uh, take a bit of a break. Uh, and then you're going to hear a word uh, from our sponsor. So if you lived in the 1870s and had the misfortune of being caught committing a crime in Barkerville right after the judge had left town, you could rest secure in the knowledge that you would be languishing in jail until the judge returned the following year, and your trial would happen in one day. Swift justice. Visit Barkerville. For more information, visit Barkerville.ca. Barkerville, a National Historic Site of Canada. And we're back! (laughs) (laughs) My name is James Douglas. I'm the guest host of the History Town podcast for this week. And with me is my very special guest, a very, very good friend of mine and co-worker, someone uh, that listeners to the History Town podcast will definitely be familiar with, Mr. Matthew Quick. Hello, James. That was very kind of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matt, thank you actually for taking this opportunity. I was hoping that at some point during this adventure, we'd get a chance to turn the tables on you and uh, find out a little bit more about you. We've we've got little slices of your life. Yes. um, As you've talked to a variety of different people that have, uh, have meant something to you in your life. I'm thinking specifically back to the Stuart Kaywood interview. We got yes. a, little, a little bit of your early days. Um, but I wondered if, if maybe you would actually just kind of revisit that for us. Like, we know that you spent a lot of your formative years in Quenelle. That's how you became acquainted with Barkerville. But can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Like, you, you came from the other side of the country. Yes. Um, and spoke almost a different language. So how, how was that <laughs> integrating into BC? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's, uh, it's great. Like we moved. So my family, uh, my, uh, my mom, Debbie, and my dad, Cyril, and my two older sisters, Hillary and Amy, uh, we moved from St. John's, Newfoundland in 1993, 
Uh, and um, or 94, I should say. So I was 12. And we moved to Quesnel. So we moved to central British Columbia. And man, it was green. Like, it, I mean, Newfoundland's green. But Quesnel and British Columbia, it's you're in the middle of, you know, you look around and you're like, we're in the middle of like a forest. Like, that's what's going on right now. And I, of course, um, had a, a bit of a Newfoundland dialect which made it difficult for when you're trying to assimilate near into your new environment, especially at 12, you don't want to become a target. You know, I'm like, all of a sudden this like big kid walks into class going, Hey, how's it going everyone? And you're like, you know, <laughs> you know um, I knew more French than the French teacher, which was always <laughs> one of those funny things. I'm not saying anything bad about the BC school system, but it was just one of those things that was noticed. Um, and it was good. I mean, it was hard. It, 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 it was hard to the sacrifice. And I understood. I didn't understand really maybe when I was 12. But I understood that um, work-wise and everything else that my there needed to be a bit of a change for my family. And my dad, um, who, you know, basically traveled across BC to start like a homesteader to like start a place and started work and called for us. And it was a bit of an adjustment, that's for sure, especially for my older sisters. And, uh, but it was great, uh, because I was 12 and it was fine. And I met Stuart Kaywood. Uh, we got into a fight, like my best, one of my best friends, I got into a fight with him in my, like my third day, I like punched him in the, in the face because he was insulting me because <laughs> that's how boys work, I guess. I don't know. Like we, I just, I just clobbered him and we became friends and, um, it was good. It was just, I mean, it's so different. It was, it was just different and we were a bit by ourselves with no family, you know, so we had to stick together. We had nobody else, you know, so yeah, yeah, it was, it was good. It was good. Um, yeah, it just seems like an interesting transition. Um, you know, it's, it's such a tough transition for so many of us anyway, that 12 years old going from elementary school into the secondary school system. So just the idea of, of making that journey a part of that transition I, I have to say, I, I, I have a lot of respect for your ability to come out of that <laughs> relatively unscathed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, you know, <laughs> there's a few bumps in the road, but it was all right. <laughs> so at what point did theater come into your life? Like, was that something you brought uh, with you from Newfoundland or was that something that you got into once you were here? When in, in St. John's, in the school I went to, the elementary school, it was a Catholic school that was no longer Catholic. So it was St. Andrews. All the teachers were uh, had to teach Catholicism, Catholicism mm -hmm. Catholic, Catholic reading, so Bible study. <laughs> and we had kids in our class who were not Catholic. You know, we had one kid who was just like, I, I'm, you know, like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, what's your religion? We're like, don't worry about it. Gajinder, like, it's fine. <laughs> you know, there's a guy and he has a coat and it's it's many colors and he has his brothers and they're jealous. And my first acting gigs were like doing these Bible studies because I always was like, I'll play Moses, not play that guy. And uh, the teacher would read it was the teacher would read the Bible study and you had to like pantomime out what was going on. And uh, uh, so that was that was always there. I always liked being up and performing. I was the youngest child, so I liked, you know, acting out a bit and, you know, telling jokes. And it didn't really like I didn't get the confidence to actually go into theater and like grade eight, you know, I was just imitating Sarah live. That's all I would do. 
because I would study like I had I, I mean I the joke is fat kid summer I had fat kid summers like I would I hated being on the sun <laughs> and I would just rent movies <laughs> and so I'd go to the video store rent five movies for five dollars these old movies like Marx Brothers watch all these movies stay up until three in the morning get up you know get up at 12 do the cycle again watch the same five movies did that in like grade seven and grade eight or grade eight, grade nine, I should say, that I just stole so much material. Like, I was a thief. Like, I was like Dane Cook of Coraloo. <laughs> like, I would Ooh. steal. <laughs> I know. <laughs> People are like, who's that? And I'm like, exactly. Um, I would just steal material. And so, like, that was my first thing. I'd watch Starrett Live. And I would, t- I knew nobody else in class would watch it. So I would come in with these edgy jokes by David Spade. You know, like, and that would be my acting. And of course, the teacher's looking at me like, there's no way you wrote this. And then it was Adam Sandler D- CDs, and I'd steal all the Adam Sandler stuff, but he swears the whole time. So I'm like swearing in class and getting in trouble. So, <laughs> so that was like, and I, it was, I wish it was better, but all my, all my material, everything, I've just stolen it. I've just, I, I copy it, I should say. Um, well, but really, yeah, it's, that's what everybody does, right? I mean, that's how you eventually kind of create your own voice, but you got to start somewhere, right? I, I would imagine. Yeah, and I credit my mom. My mom, Debbie, she always let me watch movies, not like R-rated movies, but let me watch comedies that were way above my pay grade at when I was a young age, like Blazing Saddles at 10. Oh, yeah. You know, and I, I think, and at the time, I didn't understand half of it. I didn't understand what was going on. And then you watch it now and you're like, oh, my God, like, that's pretty cool. Like, that's the movie she let me watch. And all the all Mel Brooks comedies were totally Spaceballs. Like, I love Spaceballs. Like, that was my jam, you know. Um, <laughs> I agree. And, I, I think Spaceballs was might might have been the last good one. <laughs> there's there's a couple more after that that uh, oh, I kind of wish hadn't a, been made. But. It's a steep drop off after Spaceballs. <laughs> Okay, well, okay, so obviously comedy is a big thing for you. So is that kind of what brought you into theater? Was really you, did you feel like you were a comedian first and then kind of moved into some more dramatic stuff or? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I always liked making people laugh and I would try my best to sort of uh, go that way and lean that route no matter what I did. Uh, but then I, I didn't realize till like grade 12 the power of, the sad clown like laughing making a few jokes and then being sad about it and i did that for midsummer night dream like my character would tell a few jokes and would look down at the ground because i didn't get the part of bottom or whatever you know the 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 lead in out of the mechanicals and i realized people are like oh like that was really sad like you look like you're having a good time but then you got really sad about it and i was like oh that's the power of drama is that if you it's not about this you you think of drama you think of Meryl Streep or these movies that are very serious but it's like no I I, what I got attracted to was like the sad clown somebody who's being like funny and then just be like "Mm, I'm actually really not doing well (laughs) um, so yeah grade 11 grade 12 I had this amazing theater teacher uh, Chuck Mobley who in Coralou and I was in there with like um, some great people like we had a great little class of people like my Stuart Kaywood uh, who's um, a contemporary in Barkerville and um, the person he works on the street in the blacksmith shop, like me and him 
we had a routine down like it, it was big guy skit tall skinny guy like we had a good routine um my friend jermaine like we had some we had some pretty good people in there that just made it fun but i didn't think you could make a any kind of living from it i didn't think anything beyond that i just knew i liked doing it i liked reading scripts but you're a kid from Quinnell, Hollywood, or any of those things, even just doing a play, you just, you didn't think of it. You don't, you don't think that that's something you could even do, you know, tell, tell people a joke and make money is that's what people down there who grew up in Vancouver can do. I can't do that. So, so then how did that change? Because obviously you do make money doing that now (laughs) uh, among other things, but like, so yeah, what, what was that? Where was that shift for you? Was that was Barkerville involved in that shift? Like I know just having, you know, Stuart Kaywood is also a very good friend of mine, full disclosure. And so I I know that you were the first of the duo to make it to Barkerville uh, and then ultimately brought him into the fold. So can you can you tell us a little bit about what made you take that first step down that Highway 26 road? Oh, <laughs> uh so the way I got to bar, so I went to university. I'll just do this. I went to university, did two years of theater. Um, went there with my my really close friend of mine, um, Matt Norman. Uh, me and him were like a pretty good squad, and did some plays there, and uh, did well. I did, I did, did well, did fairly well. At least I thought I did. And, um, and was this I, I was talk- what? Sorry, um, but was this Vancouver Island Un- or what became Vancouver yeah, Island so, University? Sorry, yeah. So it's Malaspina, and now it's Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo. Okay. And I went there in 19, when I was 2001 to 2003, I was there. And the teachers would always tell you, like, the ones who make it are the ones who have the strive to do so. You know, like, you have to strive. And it's also, they would tell you, it's luck. It's who you know. It's it's getting there, but it's not only being there. It's about getting a name out for people. And so I went back to Quinnell, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I did two years of of theater, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I didn't wasn't unsure and I met this girl um who I was I dated for about two and a half years who had deep connections in Cottonwood and Barkerville and her her mom was close friends with the woman that owned the the school contract uh Tracy was her name she was running the school contract at the time and she needed somebody to work Thursday Friday Saturdays so basically the the weekends and uh I was like oh I, I think I could do that I think that's something I could do. I've been to Barkerville before. In 2001, I was a dishwasher at the Wake Up Jake. Ah, uh, yes. I, I, I hid in the shadows. I hid <laughs> in the shadows a lot. I just basically would work, go home and watch movies. And um, and I actually lived at the time with the girl that eventually I would date. But that's a whole messy story altogether <laughs> that I don't want to get into because it's like, why? <laughs> <laughs> we'll save I, we'll save that one for History Town Dark. <laughs> oh, fine. That, that, there's some shady parts of that, brother. Um, so I, I was I was a dishwasher, and um, I wasn't I didn't really instill my part of the community, but I I participated in the five minute theater um, program or the the show where you did a or no one minute play festival. The one minute play festival, which I was is in, still going, which is amazing. And I we did it. It was at the art gallery on top of the hill. That's a church, but it got sold. Um, it's next next door to Stewart's. Who was owning that? Yeah, the, the was... Saint the Saint George Hotel at that time would have been owned by Marie Nagel. That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. So Marie Nagel had she held the one minute play festival. I got up and I did a monologue that was probably patchworky, some funny ideas. I think I stole something from Kids in the Hall. 
But it, it felt good because a lot of people were patting me on the back. You were one of them who patted me as I walked by. You were like, hey, good job. And I, I was too shy to even say anything. Imagine me being shy. But I was just like, ah, I just don't. I, I was so intimidated by the talent that was there because I went and played softball one day and Charlie Ross was doing a Dennis Hopper impersonation as a back catcher. And it threw me because I was like, what the hell? Like, there is some talent here. And everybody's telling jokes and we're playing softball. But it's like this weird environment that I, I didn't really know how to maneuver. Uh, so anyways, that was 2001. Wayne University, I met this girl. Her mom is like, uh, I can get you a job working at the schoolhouse with Tracy. So I become Mr. Mundell. I had the bright idea to set myself apart because I didn't know what the, I didn't really know what I was doing. I decided to give myself big giant sideburns. Sounds sounds great. Everybody's just like, oh, that's that looks weird. That's funny. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. Except for the fact that I also work two days a week at a movie store to try to make ends meet. So I'd go and work my shifts at Barkerville. And then I'd go into town with these giant sideburns and a, and a, and a totally tanned face from being out in the sun all day uh, out in Barkerville. And just looked like a, just, you know, I mean, I looked like the comic book guy from Simpsons probably. There was like a level of like, this dude is a bit off his kilter and like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> So I did that and I was like, okay, I, I don't really like it. Like, you have to be sort of, as a school teacher, you're maneuvering this line of show to educational purposes. But also, one day, one kid drew a picture of me as a pig and it broke my heart. Oh, <laughs> it broke my heart. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I want to entertain people. Not good. And I was just like in my head. And then meanwhile, I just think about all the horrible stuff I used to do to my English teachers in high school. And I was like, uh, this is revenge. Yep. This is revenge. <laughs> and uh, it was like two days later, Faith Moonsang and Jen Ray, who were operating the, the street contract at the time, walked into the schoolhouse and were like, would you like to be, um, would you like to be on the street? And I was like, yeah, no, that's what I, I'd like to do that. So um, I, I, well, and I should say that they were, they came to me and were like, we'd like you on the street because we, you know, you're always funny. You always want to interact because I was so lonely. Anytime an actor came down, I'd leap out of the house to talk to them because <laughs> to, to be, to interact, to have somebody. Cause otherwise I'm just interacting with people and that's great. But some days people come in and they don't speak English. So you just sort of do a mime. Mm -hmm. And you're and one day I didn't talk to anybody. It was like, because it was raining. And so I just sit there and I'm chopping wood and I want to make sure the schoolhouse is open. And I just didn't have the knack for it. I didn't. People can do the schoolhouse and they do it wonderfully. And there's people that, that can do it just beautifully. I was so awkward as a human being there. I just, I just couldn't find my niche. So then they gave me a character the next year. I didn't do anything really theater wise outside of Barkerville that year. The next year, 2005, I became Mr. Bailey. Melbourne Bailey, who who had a Lightning Creek Ranch or Clayton Claim outside in um, Stanley, he had a claim in the 1900s. So he was a 1900s character. So, but no, but the, there was nothing really. There were some things about him, and I researched it, and I just grew out this massive beard. And I just at one point, someone was like, "You look like an 1800s Chris Farley," and I was like. <laughs> So I was like, all right, well, whatever. I guess that's 
I'm like, what year? Like, was it Tommy Boy? Like, Beverly Hills Ninja? Because you know, there's some levels there. We can. So I, um, I, 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 I just at one point in September, uh, because Melbourne's Bailey's wife would always be sort of travel without him. I did a whole day where I sl- I woke up and I got the at the park at 7 a.m. And I took all the newspapers from the Caribou Sentinel and I laid them out on a bench like I slept out on the bench. And all day I kept reference. And so the town tour walked by and they nobody knew I was there. They walked by the Theater Royal and I was sleeping on the bench. <laughs> and and people were like, hey, uh, Mr. Bailey, how are you today? I'm like, oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm, everything's fine at my house. And like, I'm not sad. And like, <laughs> just talk to couples about their relationships. They're like, no, you got to treasure them. You really got to treasure your wife. You can't get wrapped up in work because it's not going to work for you. And I did that for a day and I was like, all right. Uh, people, Basically, I was told, reel it in. Uh, <laughs> reel that in. Although very good real world advice. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> love your wife. Why? Exactly. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm going to walk through the, the Barkerville years a bit because yeah, I didn't do, do that. I, I mean, it's just one of those things where then the next year um, – Man, we had David Radford, Christina Patterson, Stuart Kaywood. I'm saying all these names. There's people that I have interviewed. But we had all these people that came together to want to do um, – uh, oh, so I should say in 2005, I came up there with my writing partner, uh, Ben Mills. And he worked at the Theatre Royal in 2005. And we did a sketch comedy show. And it was like my coming out party. It was like nobody really knew who I was last year. And we did this sketch comedy show that we wrote. It was an hour and 25 minutes. And it, it, it was it was fun. It was very manic. And it was great. And it was just the two of us. And it was a fundraiser for I, for Island Mountain Arts, Arts Wells, which I think it was its second year. We raised like $550 for Arts Wells. And we got like nice. fancy passes and t-shirts, which was nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, 2006, um, Relationship is on the Rocks. Uh, and I, and I, I'm, I'm saying this because I have to be honest, is that relationships on the rocks, I'm doing the character, which I was playing Joshua Spencer Thompson, who was upper class. And I, I just, you know how you're trying to grab rope, like wet rope yeah. and you don't have gloves. You're just like every day I felt like I was bringing up the weight and then it would slip a bit and I'd be like, oh, I just can't get a hold of this character. And I was turning him to this, but I was like, I oh, should be Irish and he's running the newspaper and I'm. You know, my my relationship at home is sort of struggling a bit. And I'm just like, I had this year where we did artistically beautiful, like everything I did outside the park. And at some points uh, in the park, I was doing really well. But it was just, it was such a struggle everywhere else. And it was so hot. And uh, we had Stuart K. Wood. I, it should have been like the best summer. And it was at points, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. And that was on me. That wasn't the park. That was on me. We will be back with more of me. However, first, here's a word from our sponsor. If you've never been to the end of the road, you can't really describe the experience of having been there. And if you could go to the end of the road only to find what was, over 150 years ago, its own end of the road from the opposite direction, what would you think of that? Discover Barkerville Historic Town. Visit Parkerville. For more information, visit Barkerville.ca. Barkerville, a National Historic Site of Canada. Well, here, I got a good segue. Okay. Because um, you were talking about, I believe you were at Joshua Spencer Thompson. Uh, you were... 
playing uh, Thompson on the street with Faith and Jen. Yes. And this is coming from 2005 into 2006, I think, is where we're, yep. we're rolling in. And I was going to tell you that, in fact, you taught me something about history. I don't know if it was you or whoever wrote the scenes that you were involved in in 2006, but I came back. Uh, I had left Barkerville after the 2003 season, spent a couple of seasons at something called Storium in Gastown in Vancouver, which I think we've talked about before. In episode then, one. That's that's right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 2006, I came back for a season to work the water wheel with Dave Brown and uh, Mark Dawson. And that's when you and I first met. I, well, actually, no, that's not true. We met in 2001 when you worked at the Wake of Jake. Uh, I do remember your, your One Minute Play Festival entry, which I believe that was the very first One Minute Play Festival that, that year in 2001. Was 2001, okay. So there, It there might we go. have been 2000, so it could have been the first or the second year. I'm not exactly sure of the timeline there, but I, I definitely remember it. Um, and then, uh, but I, I think in 2006 is when you and I really started, got to know each other a little yeah. bit better. And you made, uh, in one of the scenes that you were talking, uh, in, that you were performing, uh, you talked about... David You talked about David Belasco... Uh, oh, he, who was a, a New York theater uh, giant who had uh, either come through or was in a in a Guffman esque uh, way uh, <laughs> p- planning to come through Barkerville and uh, potentially review something that your character has written. Am I getting this right? I, I'm, you are. You're totally right. <laughs> David Belasco, who wrote Madam Butterfly, is that right? I think so. Or yeah, what it was. It was one an of opera- the early versions of that. Yeah, or like operetta. Uh, not Madam Butterfly, no. Oh, great. <laughs> um, David Belasco, he wrote operas. He was an opera. He was an opera guy. Opera guy. Uh, eighteen late eighteen hundreds. <sighs> it's gonna bother me if we can. All right, I'm Are just you... uh, I'm I'm fulfilling the producer role right here. David Belasco <laughs> was an American theatrical producer, impresario, director, and playwright. He was the first writer to adapt the short story Madam Butterfly for oh! the stage, and he Ooh. launched the theatrical career of many actors, including Mary Pickford, America's sweetheart, who was really Canadian, Lenore Ulrich, and Barbara Stanwyck. Velasco pioneered many innovative new forms of stage lighting and special effects in order to create realism and naturalism. Wow. All right. So, sorry. Um, so, David Velasco, opera. The, yeah, the scene was they were going to put on a, a production of Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance. And they were waiting, and David Velasco is rumored to show up and make an appearance at the Caribou Amateur Dramatic Association. Uh, which is located would be located at where the Theater Royal stands now, or it was the Theater Royal, I should say. But the 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 amateur theatrical troupe was putting on trying to put on a production, and of course, uh, hilarity ensues. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember just thinking, I that was the first time that I, you know, I I I'm sure that I had encountered David Belasco's name in my theater history class or something, but that was the first time that I'd I'd heard it repeated so often that at the time I I remember looking him up just to sort of see what what the deal was with this with this person who was uh, maybe going to come to Barkerville <laughs> in, in, in the 1860s. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I haven't thought about that scene in a while. That was a that was a that was a quirky one. That was a quirky one. It's it's remin- reminiscent from when I when I hear from Stuart, um, the the one they do the Pickwick. 
the pick, it, the, it is very similar in 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 its uh, ridiculous frivolity, for yes, sure. Yes, that would be um, the Pickwick Papers uh, or the Pickwick scene is is really quite interesting because we, you know, having a, an opportunity to walk around and watch a lot of the interpretation that's happening, you can always see that that look on people's faces when there's something loud and boisterous that has is beginning, and then they're they're watching the scene, and you can just sort of see where they start to realize that they have no idea what's going on, <laughs> and it's really funny. They're having a great time, but they 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 do not know what's going on, and and the idea behind the Pickwick scene is of course that there is a meeting of the Pickwick Club which is a, a sort of like an odd fellows kind of enthusiasts uh, for the works of Charles Dickens uh, who of course was incredibly popular during the time of the original gold rush in Barkerville so uh, these 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 folks are together and the the thing about the Pickwick Club scene that I love the most is that it is real like there really was a Barkerville Pickwick Club like there are many Pickwick Clubs all around the world to this day and they are literally just excuses for people to get together and have a couple of drinks and talk about <laughs> Dickens and everything else. But the way that they present themselves, and it came from a series of articles actually in the Caribou Sentinel newspaper, which was where uh, Stuart got the idea to create this scene because there was ads that were posted by the Barkerville Pickwick Club talking about absolutely ridiculous things, like one in uh, I can't remember exactly what the date was, but talking about there had been the bones of what they decided was a sea monster discovered up near Richfield. Um, and just a bunch of ri absolutely <laughs> ridiculous things. Um, but it was it was a great opportunity to sort of transfer that uh, very historical silly club that occurred in Barkerville or that, that took place in Barkerville uh, to, and show it to a modern audience, which very much was the same, I think, with that uh, Pirates of Penzance scene. I, I recall yeah. it being hysterically funny it was it was it was yeah because they would discuss the history of theater and also the care Brown dramatic association while nobody has read the script to this play <laughs> and um it, it's it's funny because the pirates of penzance was the first musical i ever was involved with when i was in grade 11 and i so wanted to be the major general man i thought i would and uh stewart got the part of major general and I, I was like staring at him, I'm like, ah, come on. Uh, and then, uh, and then he, he sang the song and I was like, I can't remember all that. <laughs> <laughs> Which and in fact, it has set a set across a historical for everybody that's ever worked with me in theater. I, 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 I notoriously bad for changing lines. Uh, not not to de detriment of the show, but like I'll summarize a, a four four sentence paragraph into three sentences, <laughs> and <laughs> eventually like ASMs would be like, "You got there, but here's your notes. <laughs> like you're slowly there." So I I prefer to say that I'm like Bill Murray that I don't really need to memorize all of it. Other people prefer to call it you know lazy, <laughs> like unprofessional. <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> well, um so well then let's let's kind of move from there to I think what has possibly become sort of more your more defining role in Barkerville. Um after that 2006 season or shortly after that season, you made the transition from the 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 street contract into the theater royal itself. Can you Tell us a little it, bit about that. Yeah, and it was in fact like so. Two thousand six, I I um I was in a like a, 
almost a three-year relationship barkerville which was all included around barkerville like this that's how i started and i i moved to vancouver with my writing partner ben mills and then i moved shortly to victoria with my best friend and uh his now wife uh, matt norman and jessica and they took me in as this like guy who basically didn't know what he was i didn't know what the next move was because i almost didn't want to go back to barkerville because i didn't know if the girl was going to go back to barkerville so i had this like okay well what's my next step here and uh in january of 2007 richard wright phones me and i and i tell this story in the his in the pod, the podcast we did episode oh geez seven i want to say seven that's probably not um richard and i talk and he phones me up out of the blue and i give him a 10 minute spiel about how good i'm doing in victoria without barkerville and he says i want you to work with me and i went okay <laughs> Like, let's do it. Let's let's work together. Because me and him had always good chemistry together. Like, we always talked well. And so then it stepped into, I was coming into Barkerville uh, working for the Theatre Royal as a producer's assistant and box office. And it was, it was, I learned a lot from Richard and, from Richard and Amy. Like, a lot. Like, Richard has a business mind that he would sit us down in his, um, his house and he has this nice couch and he has this chair that he'd sit in and he would just tell you about everything he thought about business and everything he thought about um, how to, you know, make an idea practical, make sense, and then market it. Marketing genius. I, I, I learned so much from Richard. Uh, however, at the, for, for myself, it was a big transition because I had this street background. So I decided to develop a Mr. Howman at the theater Royal who is an Easterner. Uh, that's not where he started, but that's where he ended up was <laughs> because I realized when selling a show that if I did uh, uh, my Eastern dialect and I was talking to people, you could say anything to anybody because they just think you don't know any better. They, you could talk fast to them. You can, you can sort of hustle them a bit. You can, and I'm not doing it in a mean spirited way or try to get somebody's money just to be like, you want to be a show barker out there. And, um, often people would walk by and I was, I was be standing Richard's right hand, literally his right hand. And he'd hit me with a cane and go increase sales. <laughs> so talk about the show, talk to people, get out there and do that. And it was, it was a fun fun time and you're learning i'm learning about all the back end of business and i realized that i sort of like the the business side of theater as well as much as i liked the acting side of theater uh and and, to, and like those year the 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 year that i spent with richard in 2007 i i love fell in love in barkerville again and i'm not saying i fell out of love but i felt like i had to reinvent myself i i i lost a bunch of weight i i sort of started doing things differently shaved i i cut my hair differently because the person that i was in those earlier years was now gone to me i had to change so i changed everything i and i became as as i would be walking up the street with my like laptop case and david radford once called me was it he said i was the 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 grasshopper no, is it the grasshopper? Who's the one that saves all the acorn? Or that saves all everything, and the the grasshopper and the and the ant and the ant. So he was just like, "You're the." So he, I'd be the ant. He's like, "There you go. Like you're the one that's actually like moving on a bit and taking extra steps and learning about different sides of the business." 
And he would always make that joke to me because he'd see me. And half of it was just to make fun of me because he's like, he'd be walking behind me like, oh, got your laptop. Time to go typey type. <laughs> Time to type out things. Uh, so I did that for 2007, 2008. And um, uh, I, I, sorry, I should say 2007, 2008 was really big years for Richard Namey. They were growing quite well. Um, they had a, a, a touring group during the summer of 2008. Uh, that toured around uh, BC. That was, um, I forget the name of it now. Jeez, that's bad of me. But they had a touring group that would go on during the summer. So we had literally the Theater Royals show happening at the theater, and you had a touring group that was touring around with the show. Mining um, the Motherload, I think that was called, the actually. Yes, the yeah. Motherload tour, yes. Yeah. Jeez, James, come on. Thank you for helping me out. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> And, and also at this time too, and I, I'm going to say this because I was trying to put it in perspective that I was like a wrestler and picture this way is that sometimes wrestlers are good guys. Sometimes they're bad guys. And sometimes they have to change personas. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing it like this. So 2004 to 2006, I was a good guy. I was a, nobody really knew who I was, but I was just, I just, I, I was a good guy. 2007, for some reason, I believed, I had this weird notion that relationships are what brought down, that what, I, I didn't have a good year relationship, so I'm not going to be in a relationship. I'm going to focus on myself and I'm just going to focus on myself. And I realized in 2007 to 2008, I wasn't happy. I, I was, I was doing great and loved Barkerville, but I just was like, I couldn't find that perfect medium of what was going on. I, you could tell where I'm leading about to this. I'm leading just to be me being married, just to, yeah. just to put over my marriage, but that's all right. <laughs> it's quite all right. <laughs> um, She's a fabulous woman. So she you is, talk about she it. is. And, and um, like, I love Barkville and I love the history and I love the fire department. Like the fire department's the one thing that I loved uh, about Barkerville was finding out about, you know, how they couldn't have a pump truck because a lot of people believe that in the documents that there was, you could pump up frogs from a lake and debris and it would jam up your machine. So then they're, and then, and then they decide, okay, we'll put, um, you know, uh, like how we do hydraulic mining, we'll have these wells up on a hillside that'll feed water down and that'll be our fire system, you know, like into these like hydrants. And, it, and you, you read about that and you're like, this is pretty amazing. Like this is, this is an innovative, this is a group of people that are like, all right, well the town burned down once, we got to fix this. Let's space out the town. Let's actually construct. Let's actually make this what it is a town at this point after the fire. Because the fire sort of was a, a reset to the town of Barkerville. And they actually designed, you know, there's some parts that I look at. I'm like, wow, like you imagine, like there wasn't much room to go down that main street. That main, that main little, that's um, for people to travel by and it was it's it just that's what always fascinated me it was that reset button that after 1868 that's the period that i loved and i'm all over the place I'm, i am and it's just the way my mind no it's understandable yeah so you no, but that's good i i really like that because i i agree there is something about that rebirth i mean florence wilson Dennett Boucher, episode one, um, who was the first librarian in British Columbia and who also owned the Florence Saloon prior to 
the Great Fire, when everything burned down and she rebuilt, she rechristened her saloon the Phoenix Saloon. Oh, as, yes. Uh, you know, for that very reason, like there is a whole new life that is being born of these ashes. And you're absolutely right. The, the, the combination of the Caribou Amateur Dramatic Association and the revitalized Williams Creek Fire Brigade coming together to build the, the, the Williams Creek Fire Brigade building, which ultimately also housed the Theatre Royal. Um, there's also, of course, the, the first major donation to the Williams Creek Fire Brigade that's, that's brought on by David Oppenheimer, who uh, had a store in Barkerville, the Oppenheimer uh, Food Conglomerate. It is now a multinational corporation in the world that has a, a massive um, philanthropic arm, and they credit the Barkerville Fire as being the birth of that, that giving portion of, of their business. Um, uh, David Oppenheimer uh, donated the hose carriages and the new uniforms for the Williams Creek Fire Brigade. To He's also, wasn't he the first uh, member, the first uh, um, of the Masonic Lodge? Like he was the first... Was no, he the founder? He, no, he wasn't. In fact, he didn't. He didn't. He wasn't a Mason at all. Oh, well, then um, it was actually Joshua Spencer Thompson. Oh, <laughs> we got to edit that. <laughs> We're gonna have to edit all. We're like, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, it, You're it like, was... did you study at all? Oh man, pretty good. It was uh, it was Thompson and a couple other guys, a fellow named John Nutt, uh, who built right, St. Xavier's right. Church. Um, they had uh, come up from Sacramento, California, and brought with them a charter from the Tehama Lodge uh, in in California. So that's why um, the Masonic ritual that occurs in Barkerville in this part of the Caribou is is a very interesting mix of American rite, Canadian rite, uh, ancient rite, um, because of just the whole inter international flavor of the people that were coming here to the gold fields, but its initial charter uh, was uh, originally brought up as part of their mother lodge from Tehama in Sacramento, California. And in 2007, there was a giant Masonic gathering um, that summer. And I, I was surprised by how many of the members were from the Californias. And they, they talk about how Barkerville's discussed, like the history of these lodges Barkerville is like one of those ones that is discussed um, quite heavily down in the States, down in those California because of mines and what have you, but also Sacramento was one of them too. Um, so, uh, okay. So ultimately we were bringing this around to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> because I, what I'm trying to do is I, I don't want to come off like, oh, he, because I had a lot of fun with Barkerville and it was these, these periods where I'd go in in two years and I finally had this, this one year, 2009, I met your wife, Danette Boucher. Um, I, I had a, like perfect, I wrote this script. Um, I did a one man show. I was 2009 was actually my favorite year because I focused all my energy, all this excess energy just on the park, just on how much I loved Barkerville. And it was funny. I don't know if it was just a journey that I had to go through or if it was just growing up or maybe just finding out what I sort of did and did want. But 2009, I fell in love with Barkerville. And it was actually because Richard Wright sent me an email because I said, I don't know if I could come back. And he sent me an email being like, if you want, because we, I always said to him, ring the bell, which ring the bell at the Theatre Royal means get the show going. Well, I used, we used to also joke about it being to the call of the, the end of a show, like ring the bell like a boxer. 
And he just put his, he ended this email about like, I, I think you are, you have tremendous potential. I have these, all these great ideas and you love Barkerville and you keep trying to say, he's like, you, you, you're, you're trying to find yourself. And I think you, we have a right position for you. And I think we know what exactly what you need. Ring the bell. You want to do it. Let's ring the bell. And that was that. I came back and I was invigorated and I loved it. I, I, I came back in and, um, I forgot how much I loved the park. And standing up and mornings, I would just go to the park and just sit there, just sit there and just watch it. And um, it's not saying I ever took it for granted, but it was just a sense of um, finding what I, I wanted the park to do for me and I do for the park. And I'm totally probably reading way too much into this, but I, I, I that's where I, I fell in love with the park. I fell in love with her. Yeah. And I'm going to reference her as her because this is where the next year. I was working and I, I'm leading up to history town. I'm leading up to all these things and meeting and meeting you, James, and having these great discussions. Um, but in 2010, I met my future wife, Genevieve Ewart, and now she's Genevieve Quick. And I, I, I sort of realized I was like, I'm at a bit of a crossroads. Like I'm going to have to either um, leave my first wife. <laughs> my first relationship was with Barkerville. Like everything that I've experienced from 2004 really even in 2001, the 2010 was everything about this park. And I love it so much, but I think I have to step away to go after, pursue mm. something else. Chercherche la femme, find out what I can, what I can do. And it's a tough decision. And I, it wasn't one that I took easy, but I sort of was like, okay, I think, uh, I think I have to, I think I have to walk away. I think I have to go from Barkerville and Richard and Amy were wonderful um about it and i love the park i love wells my family still lives in quenelle and uh i went on a bit of a journey and i'm gonna just skip because i i, I do realize I, i'm long-winded and i could be telling different stories altogether and i think it's just one of those things where uh i left the park 2010 then i went on a journey i became a, a mental health worker youth worker for Todd McDonald, who is an avid fan of the show. Avid fan. He thinks you're amazing. He is not a big fan of me, <laughs> but he thinks you're amazing. <laughs> well, my, I like my, this guy. <laughs> no, he's fantastic. Um, he started listening to the show. Uh, or Sorry, so I, I started working for him as a youth worker for four years. And I was trying to be like, you know what? I miss Barkerville. It's almost like a, uh, my uh, – I was talking to somebody. I talked to a counselor because you should talk to a counselor if you're a mental health worker just to have somebody mm -hmm. else to explore your ideas with. And they sort of said it's like you uh, amputated something because you're like, you know, I can't I can't focus all my energy on this. But you should you almost went, I, I got to put Barkerville away for a bit just to focus different energy. But you still get those ghost pains like every mm -hmm. time. And I mean it. May 21st, I would sit there and I would re I would watch all of you people in Barkerville getting set, doing the town tours, rehearsing and po pictures posting up. And every year my heart's like, oh, man, I love that place. I love it so much. And uh, I, I love everything that happens there. And I and I visited a few times and it's like, geez, it's so much a part of you. you. You don't think about it, but it's that little house that, man, this town hooks its claws into you. And um, I'll flash just because uh, we could talk forever, but I think just for the, the sake of what we're, we're talking about, and just a little brief overview of who I am, um, because I could keep going. And I think I made enough cultural references that we can just sort of go towards... <laughs> I've had my wonderful wife Genevieve Quick, and um, 
I started thinking my my best friend Matt Norman, he loves podcasts. We love podcasts. And uh um we started talking about why isn't I started talking to him about podcasts. Why isn't there one about something that I love? And I love Barkerville. Why isn't there no history ones? And I would search history podcasts. I'm like, but there is none. And then finally one day I was at the gym. I got I had a bad workout. I just went home and I t- emailed you. I emailed your wife first. I emailed Danette being like, I think I have this idea for a podcast. Would you like to be interviewed? And she said, I think James is working on something. Message him. And it's and like, James, and I'll tell you, and I, I, I sort of, I, I didn't even have a microphone. <laughs> I didn't have anything. I didn't, I had an idea where I said, um, I think I want to talk to people about this place that I love. I think I want to talk to this play people of the people that work there and the people that admire this place, Barkerville. So I messaged you and you were like, I think that's a great idea. Let's get together. Let's have a conversation. Um, here's this brand. And next thing you know, we had an idea and that's where um, I, I just got to give everything to you because I tell you a bit of a journey. It's a summarized journey and it's sort of, some people might be like, geez, oh, it's, it's, Hey, give this guy a, towel to cry in eh? it's like and you're it was it's like i sound like very emotional like i'm romeo about all these relationships and everything else but the biggest relationship i ever had was with barkerville mm-hmm. and uh coming having you support me and being like let's produce this let's make this happen i am forever thankful to you because you're the guy that got me back into barkerville and i couldn't do it in person i couldn't physically be there and help but i can talk i have a microphone i have an internet connection and i have a laptop that i have my wife's laptop and uh <laughs> i paid nine dollars for GarageBand, and we have an idea to talk to people about this place and i, I i'd like to say like right off the bat like you're you and of course we have dirk van stralen and i, I you know uh the first guests were like danette boucher and stewart people who didn't know what we were doing and you believed in an idea um, that you helped create and you helped produce. And we just had this one, but you're the one that brought uh, a little bit of happiness back of Barkerville. I can't be there all the time. So I, I thank you. And I think that's where, I mean, uh, it's, I thank you so much um, that you help me do this every, I think about it once a month that we go through and we have these conversations, we talk about Barkerville. And I thank you for that. I mean that. Well, yeah. I, I, I really appreciate that, but I, but you know, this is now devolving into a mutual admiration society meeting <laughs> because yeah, I mean, it was definitely, was an idea. The idea of a podcast was something Dirk and I had been tossing around for about a year. Um, we had had some good success over the past three years with a series of one panel cartoons that Dirk, uh, drew for us, uh, for online and, uh, for publication in the Prince George Citizen. Um, for those of you who don't know, Dirk Van Stralen had a one panel cartoon in the Georgia straight in Vancouver for 17 years called Van Stralen and it was a little quirky you know his, his take on what's going on in the world's kind of uh, look and I was a huge fan of of 
those cartoons long before I even met Dirk. Uh, ironically, he and Dennett went to high school, so they knew each other very, very well, but I only sort of knew him through the cartoons. So when he came aboard a few years back to work, to do some marketing work for, for me, and I knew about this former cartoon, I knew that I wanted to have a Barkerville stamp on that, and he was very generous with his talent to be able to do that for us. And then we, we published it in conjunction with a series of essays that Dennett wrote, uh, about 70 of them over the course of three years, um, for the published originally in the Prince George Citizen and then also on our blog, and we, and we had called that History Town. Now, I found out after the fact I may actually have stolen that title from you, <laughs> because uh, I know that you did use it in a show that I, that I didn't actually see, um, I'm sorry to say, um, and, but it had been a name that had been sort of floating back and forth in our uh, in our collective unconscious, I suppose. So we had called this series of cartoons and columns History Town. We were looking at possibly putting that together, that idea together in some sort of podcast, but honestly, Dirk and I were sort of stalled at that point. We knew that we wanted to do it last year, but we didn't know how we were going to do it. And then out of the blue, I got that email from you. Yeah. So that's what I want to say to you is good on you for doing that because had you not sent me that email this wouldn't be happening the way it is right now yeah it's 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 pretty amazing how it all worked out and uh um i mean i'm gonna i i think it's best to just sort of you know i don't really like talking too much about myself and as you can tell i um i can i can wander off into different directions i think i brought up wrestling at one point you know where i was going with that one <laughs> um <laughs> and uh I, I clearly don't i didn't do my homework as much as i thought with joshua spencer thompson <laughs> but I, I i you know like i think as as it goes i am um, uh with all the talented people that have come through barkerville uh, it's pretty easy to sit back and just chat with people and talk to them about their love, because I think that's the one thing. I mean, we're, we're going to keep going with the podcast. This isn't like a, a memorial or anything by me being cool. interviewed. <laughs> I, I think it's just more being like, well, let's, I, we talk and it's around the 11th episode. Let's, let's chat with me a bit and hear why I love this place because I'm not affiliated beyond just the podcast and my, my history and my memories and pictures and, yeah, I do love it. I love that place. Well, and, and you are you are affiliated. I mean, that's that's the thing about this Barkerville family is that once you're here and you've expressed your love for it and you continue to want to be a part of it regardless of whether you're physically here or not, you're you're a part of it. I mean, we are a part of this history now and um I'm really really very happy that we're we're able to to put this podcast together for sure. Well, and on that note, uh, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> um, well, I, I actually do think that this might be a, a really good, because we, we tend to end the podcast with a little bit of this, hey, I love you, man, and, and thank you yeah. for doing this. And, and it's true. I, I do love what you're doing. I love that, uh, that you're bringing your talents and your efforts here to the, the History Town podcast. And uh, for those of you listening, I, I do hope you remember that History Town is a listener-supported podcast. Uh, so any likes or shares or uh, you know any kind of publicity that you can do for us uh, so that we can get more and more listeners listening to this podcast and listening to Matt and his journey and the journey of those of us here in Barkerville, we would very, very much appreciate it. Um, I do think that we should probably say goodbye for the moment, Matt. Um, and I'm glad that you brought us right up to the History Town marker. And I'm hoping that uh, sometime over the next 12 months, we can have another one of these sit downs and find out a little bit more about what you're doing right now. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'd love that. 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, was our illustrious host, regular host, Matthew Quick. My name is James Douglas. This has been the History Town Podcast. As always, gentle listeners, uh, we will remind you that the History Town Podcast is a listener-supported podcast. So please, like, share, rate, spread the word about this podcast to anyone you think might be interested, and maybe everyone else too. We would really appreciate that support. Uh, today's podcast, I would like to thank our guest, Matthew Quick, his beautiful wife, Genevieve Quick, my beautiful wife, Danette Boucher, our good friend, Dirk Van Stralen, and his beautiful wife, Julia Mackey, and all you beautiful listeners and your beautiful husbands and wives. We're going to take you out of this week's podcast with a song from a very good friend of Barkerville and a very good friend of the doctor's case, Mr. Jer Brakes. Jer Brakes is a Prince George originally based musician now based out of Vancouver, uh, a fantastic guitarist who is also writing the original score for The Doctor's Case. Uh, that album will be produced by Ken Hiwat Marshall, and we look forward to uh, delivering those CDs as part of our package uh, for the Kickstarter campaign, which has gone live, by the way, uh, the Kickstarter campaign. So do uh, go kickstarter.com, The Doctor's Case Movie Project, or thedoctorsmovie.com. Thank you very much for listening. Here is Come Down by Jer Briggs. to